106th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critiquing to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode stars Amy Chosick, the writer at large for the New York Times and author of Chasing Hillary, 10 years, two presidential campaigns, and one intact glass ceiling. And today, we're going to tackle a few areas. The highs and lows of covering a presidential election, the spectacular profile Amy wrote of a woman who cut off her husband's penis, and getting people to open and engage when they've been told, damn it, don't open and engage. Amy's an absolute star, and it's awesome to welcome her here to Two Writers Singing Yay. First of all, thank you for doing this. I Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. It's kind of funny. So I started my career at the Nashville, Tennessee, and, and when I picture okay. a newsroom... I feel like I always picture 1996, and yeah. <laughs> it's huge, and everyone's buzzing around, and blah 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 blah. What is you are in? You're literally in the New York Times newsroom. What is a newsroom in 2019? I mean, the first thing that people are surprised about, I think, in the newsroom is how it's like pin drop silent. You know, we're all like on Slack or G chatting each other, even if we sit like three feet away from each other. So I think people have this image of like racing around the, you know, racing around the newsroom, but it's, it's like oddly silent. Um, so it's very quiet. What else? I mean, there's, there's TVs everywhere. There's also, this is probably a new feature from your days is big monitors, um, uh, telling us which stories are performing the best. Oh. Um, yeah, so it's always like exciting when you see your story is on the trending, you know, board of the of, in the big kind of hub of the newsroom. And yeah, we've 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 redesigned the newsroom, so it's like much more open, no real desks. It's you know right in the middle of of scenic Midtown Manhattan by the Port Authority bus terminal. Um, but I love it. Why do you need a newsroom in 2019? You know, I think you really need it when you're. Um, when there's breaking news, you really kind of appreciate the newsroom. You see like different editors running up to each other and who's covering this angle and who's doing this angle and are you on top of this? And, you know, and so it's, you really do need it. Um, but then for my purposes, when I'm trying to like write a feature, that's when it can be sort of hard because you want to block out noise and, um, you know, have some quiet space, which is hard to find, even though I just said how quiet it is. So, but yeah, I think you appreciate the newsroom on the days when there's like real news and you see all of these different desks and minds and uh, viewpoints coming together to create this thing at the end of the day, even though of course, like the thing is also happening simultaneously on the web and on Twitter and all over the place. Um, It's kind of a beautiful thing for those of us who love newspapers. Do newspapers in 2019 make you happy or sad? When you go to a town, let's say you yeah. travel and you go to, I don't know, whatever, New Orleans, and you see what happens to that newspaper mm-hmm. there, or does it kind of break your heart? I Well, I'm from San Antonio, and I started working at the San Antonio. When I grew up, there were two newspapers in San Antonio. Rupert Murdoch's first newspaper in the U.S. was the San Antonio Light, and it was supposed to compete with the San Antonio Express News. And in high school, I got this, like, I got permission to, like, leave high school for a couple hours when I was 16 and got a car, a, a used car, and go work downtown at the San Antonio Express News. So this was a mid-sized city that was supporting two newspapers, and so it does 
does make me really sad to go home and see that the, you know, of course the light is gone and the Express News has like really been gutted. It runs a lot of wires, a lot of AP kind of stuff. And so the local newspaper uh, problem, I think, is a huge problem, not just for aspiring journalists who want a pipeline to work in or just, a, you know, a good career, but also I think it's a problem for democracy. I think local news holds local powers accountable, and it's a it's a real problem. For as much as we talk about fake news and corrosive powers of that, I think uh, I think the economics of, of daily newspapers, I mean, the local newspapers is really problematic um that said i'm also like not a doom and gloom person when i hear people wanting to be journalists i mean in my day i had to like have clips and go around and get a foot in the door and like nobody seemed to i had no foot in the door because i didn't go to harvard i didn't have connection i didn't go to ivy league school i didn't have any connections you know right now it feels like you can start like my old colleague brian stelter did like breaking news on a blog in his dorm room you know and got attention got hired at the times now as a cnn show of course so like and i see kids doing that just like making a name i think the barriers to entry in a way are lower but um but also there's less of the kind of conventional go get clips at the you know at the new orleans at the times picayune um that route is harder i think yeah. I think people coming up today, so I graduated University of Delaware, kind of like you, not a journalism power, mm-hmm. 1994. I sent out 200 packets with clips, you know, resume, my crappy resume, yeah, cover letter to every different newspaper. Oh, yeah. Wait, what was your, um, what was your grind? Like, what was your grind to make it in the business? <laughs> I used to like, I ran around. I was very like, I was very like, somebody, somebody said during the during the campaign when some Bernie, one of the Bernie bros was trying to like troll me and read my bio, they said, she sounds like a sad cross between Midnight Cowboy and Working Girl. I was like, that's kind of exactly <laughs> right. it, actually. It. I was like this like out of fish out of water Texan running around with my like sneakers and suit, like physically dropping off my clips and like security being like, you're going to have to leave. Like, um, but eventually, and it was hard, like it was, it was very hard. And there were definitely years when I was like temping and trying to get a job in journalism when I thought, you know, maybe I should go to law school, which of course would have been horrible. I just want you to know when I, uh, when I was in college, we attended a job fair at the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philadelphia Daily News and, uh, myself and another editor at the student newspaper snuck into the offices where no one was looking with a stack of our clips used, took post-it notes wrote, you should check this kid out. That's, just did no, and, that's awesome. And left him on desk. Amazing. I defy you. What do you, what do you, what was your lowest moment? What was your lowest moment trying to break in? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, well, so I actually got fired. I were, I got a job for this very prestigious literary agent and I got fired because she basically represented all of these writers whose careers I wanted, like Ted Conover and all these famous journalists. And I was like, reaching out to her client list and being like, hi, do you have any advice for me? Like, I work for your literary agent. She was like, no, we're supposed to help them, not the other way around. And I ended up getting, actually getting fired. Would you actually call them? No, I didn't call them. It was like, if they would come in or if they would like need me to set up a meeting, then I'd also be like, so by the way. Um, So that was probably not the best thing for an assistant to be doing, but like, what are you gonna do? That's pretty fantastic. Now that you know, you've had your career, are you some, some 22 year old kid at your, uh, at your agent's office comes up to you and is like, um, do you, do you think you could look at my clips? Are you, uh, 
Are you the asshole to them, or are you? Are no, you- I have like a big, I have like a big softy for anyone who like reaches out to me on Twitter and wants to send me their clips or like, because I was there, man. You know, like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a softy for anyone who wants to get advice or I don't I often like don't have time and actually now I understand I'm like oh people didn't have time to just like get coffee with a random stranger who was like wanting career advice right like so something I don't have time but um I will definitely like help direct them here the times has all these great like fellowship programs and like I feel like in my day it was like the Ivy League pipeline was very powerful and today there's a lot more consciousness in newsrooms to like look all over the country at people with all different backgrounds so yeah, no, I'm down for at least pass, at least look, taking a look at clips and passing someone on to the right person. I started Sports Illustrated in 1996, and they were, everyone talked about the Princeton Pipeline. The yeah. Princeton Pipeline. I don't know if you feel this way. I always felt, coming from a school like Delaware, I almost felt better about myself in that I knew no one was helping me because of where I went to college. Yeah. That's that interesting. I the opposite. I still have like a major chip on my shoulder, and my dad's always like, "You have no college debt," and I don't know what the hell you're talking about here. You did all right without going to. I have a chip on my shoulder about it still. You feel like you should have gone to Princeton. No, I mean, I mean, with my parents were like, it's not like Princeton was knocking down our door, right. but like I just grew up. I just realized that like this, that was not even like in my realm. Like most of the kids who graduated with me didn't go to college or went to community colleges. It wasn't like we went on like a college tour. Like I didn't even know what a college tour was till I, you know, got to New York and people were doing this. It was like you know, there. And, and and in fairness, I went to an excellent school, at University of Texas at Austin. It's like an amazing. It's amazing to be from Texas and be able to spend. I think it was four thousand dollars a semester on a really great college education. I just for a long time was like, oh, maybe I could have like applied for financial aid and tried to go to one of these beautiful fancy schools. But now I'm like, now I'm in a different stage where I'm, I'm grateful I went there. I think that like Delaware and UT and all these other places like can, and not that the fancy schools can't do this, but like I think it's very valuable to be like scrappy and resourceful. Like you found a sticky note to like try to try to like try to get your way, hustle your way into the Philadelphia Inquirer. So I feel like being scrappy and resourceful is is more valuable probably than having all of those. I also think for five minutes it sounded it sounded like we were two people talking about going to Westchester Community College. Like it's not like we went to bad No, I know exactly. Right? <laughs> we went to like really good colleges and also like when all of the talk like twenty twenty candidates are talking about college affordability, it's like it's I mean, I was so I went back to give a speech at UT and I was just like, I was so lucky to be born in a state that had a really good public school that I could take advantage of. Um because not everyone has that. And I think it's even, I think it's a lot more expensive now, even if you're in state. I'm, I'm really, 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 really fascinated and always have been by people who cover presidential elections because it strikes me almost as like a really warped, really long summer camp. You're eating crappy food. You're mm-hmm. on different modes of transportation. I feel like when I read about you covering Hillary Clinton, I picture myself gaining 90 pounds Oh, like, yeah. Like, it just seems like pleasure pain. It seems like the ultimate in pleasure pain. And I wonder, yeah. looking back now at the last campaign, do you enjoy covering a presidential campaign? I mean, there's, like, parts that I enjoy. I don't really see myself as, like, a presidential campaign reporter. I covered two of the best, most exciting historic campaigns in 2008 and 2016. But, like, 
there are definitely reporters who like their whole life gearing up for the next, you know, the next time they can get on the campaign bus. I'm sort of not that way. I feel like for me, journalism is like I'm learning about different worlds. I was a foreign correspondent in Tokyo and then I covered presidential politics and then I covered business. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, there's certainly things I enjoy. Uh, My husband says it's like riding a donkey through the Grand Canyon. It might be sort of like miserable, but then you're like really glad you did it and you can tell people you did it. Um, I mean, I was in 48 states, you know, on my company's dime, so that's amazing. Um, I've got to witness a lot of history. You know, Obama on election night in Chicago, I was the pool reporter, so I was the only reporter with him as the results were um, coming in, and then the motorcade drove to Grant Park, and that was historic. I mean, when Hillary cried in New Hampshire, I was, like, right by her. I mean, there's something amazing about being able to have that front row seat but then like most days are just like total monotony of the same speech in a different high school gym you know and checking into the Hilton Garden in at night it's like it's both prestigious and totally unglamorous so um but also like it is it is a lot of fun and you get like sort of addicted you know there's like this traveling circus that you make friends on the road and 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 then this happens and I'm not certainly not comparing myself to a war correspondent but this happens with foreign correspondents or war correspondents it's like you come back and you actually feel more at home on the road like they I remember just being in Ohio and hearing voters talk about losing their homes to foreclosure and going to these factory towns and then I'd come back to New York for like a rare weekend in New York and I just couldn't adjust to like brunch I was like I can't like we're talking about avocado toast like there's like real problems in the world people like I don't know it's a weird it's kind of a weird job and that you almost start feeling more at home with the people you're you're on the bus with which isn't great for relationships you know? well you know it's interesting I, it's, and you, you say it's not the same as being a war correspondent yeah and this isn't the same as covering an election but i remember i used to be a major league baseball writer and you spend all this time mm-hmm. on the road and people whenever you come home people want to know like whoa who's gonna what are the yeah. Nets gonna do what are the yankees gonna do and then eventually people stop asking and it stops becoming your life and you, you're confused by missing it. Like you actually yeah. miss it, even though you keep dreading it when you're talking about it. Yeah, it's a really love hate, but you make a good point. I mean, something about like, you know, you can't even get off when you want to because once you're, when you're back home and you go to a party or you go to like a dinner with your friend, all they want to know is like, so do you think Warren's going to do it? Do you think, what do you think? Come on. It's like, you can't get away from it. And it's, so it's both kind of adrenaline fueled and addictive and also like really exhausting. Yeah. Do you do? You, it seems like now, I mean, there are multiple things going on at the same time with the political media, and one of them is people being really, really hard on the coverage. You know, the media is mm-hmm. blowing it. You guys, are, you're you're letting him get away with it. You're not covering yeah. the important issues. Um, how do you feel when you hear that? Do you, do you feel like, oh, people have a point, or is it just impossible? Um, I mean, sometimes, a lot of times people do have a point, and I think that there is, like, a reflective defensiveness that is not a good look from, because, look, journalists, like, genuinely try to get it right and do a good job, but, and so there is, like, I think there can be, like, a reflexive defensiveness on social media, but then that said, I also think that there's, like, a lot of blaming, there's a lot of misplaced rage on all sides, you know, and I think there's recipient a lot of that rage sometimes rightly is the media and sometimes not rightly or sometimes we do something stupid i mean a stupid tweet or a stupid headline that gets corrected and it's like okay let's all move on um so i think um 
yeah, I think both. I mean, I think there's a lot of legitimate criticism. I mean, I get at in my book, um, and then I also think there's a lot of noise and misplaced anger on all sides. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's just part of the job. I don't think we can complain about it. I don't think we can dismiss dismiss any of it. There's this one thing that I can't get past, and you're going to be like, you need to move past this because who gives a shit, right? So like, you know, I'm from New York. I lived in New York on 9-11. It's a very personal thing for me. Um, Donald Trump says on, on the day after 9-11, he was down at ground zero helping with the recovery effort. Mm-hmm. Not true. Like, just not true. Like, mm-hmm. He wasn't there, didn't help. He just made that up. Right. And I can't get past it. And I keep thinking, mm-hmm. when are people going to talk about this? When are people going to write about this? Why is this not a thing? Because it's something that would have killed past politicians mm-hmm. in a day. It would have been over. That's it. This guy lied about... The biggest tragedy yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. So, what has changed in that regard that stuff like that isn't sticking anymore, or doesn't, or maybe shouldn't? Well, I don't know. I mean, there's something specific to Trump, um, and I think that I think that news organizations have been really good at fact checking. I mean, it's sort of like politicians always lie, but they've lied in a very like legalese. They've been economical with the truth. You know, Trump will look at the sky and say it's, you know, say it's the floor. I mean, there's like the kind of baldness of his lies have made it almost like people have reached, kind of been, gotten immune to it, you know, and I think that's a kind of dangerous thing. But I do think, I do think we continue to fact check aggressively and call call these things out. I mean, the question of whether his base and his supporters care is sort of like out of our hands, right? If people say, oh, well, I know he lies, or I think it's funny. I mean, that was something I always heard. Oh, I think he's funny. I know he's lying, but it's, it's fine. Um, you know, that is sort of out of our hands. Are people just looking to be entertained? I mean, I do think there is, like, a reason that Trump, you know, came up in reality television. And I do think there's a convergence of entertainment and politics that has become both kind of diminishing to the process and sort of dangerous. Um but yes, absolutely. But this isn't new. I mean, like we've wanted a candidate who we can have a beer with for a long time, and we elected an actor. You know, I mean, so there's all, like I think ever since the advent of television with Nixon kind of sweating bullets in that debate, there's been a um, you know a blurring of entertainment and television and, and presidential politics. Yeah. You um one thing I was fascinated by. So I, I I'm gonna be honest. I I just literally ordered your book on Amazon last night. I've been reading all the excerpts. Felt like she never really wanted, did not want to allow an intimacy with the media. What is the. Yeah, there was a total aversion to the press completely, yeah. And why do you think that is? Um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but I think she's very scarred by um, all of the scandals from previous years and just entered 2016 as the front runner and very much kind of not wanting to engage in the media. Is there a part of you, even though it is your job to get as much access as possible, um, that understands where she's coming from, or is it more sort of anger and frustration? Uh, both. I think I understood where she was coming from, but that doesn't change the fact that if you want, you can't keep getting frustrated that the media is not portraying you fairly when you're not ever engaging with the media. Um, but I also don't think that like access is like my job was not dependent on getting, you know, our jobs aren't dependent on getting an interview with the candidate. Is it, am I even misstating that by saying like, 
it's a chase for access or it's a push for access is that yeah that makes me recoil i mean the best journalism is not based on access what would you say it is based on and it would be based i mean for one if you're getting an access you're telling readers something that somebody wants them to know right and like the best journalism is telling readers something that people powerful people don't want them to know Uh, whether it's trump's taxes or you know uh whatever it is that's really interesting because i do think there's a general idea i've written books on people where they would not sit down for an interview and someone would say well how could you write a biography of barry bonds and not get any time with barry bonds and i would say well you interview 500 people around him and they'll tell you more truthful things than he will. Yeah, exactly. And candidates are so on message. Am I really getting? I mean, I got to know Hillary's friends from her high school debate team too. You know, her current day State Department allies. And so, yeah, uh, how much is it really gonna? I remember listening to Robert Carroll about his uh, Robert Moses books. He didn't get an interview for for years till Moses finally decided to talk to him. Um, after he'd been interviewing like everyone who knows him for three years. Right. Um, you wrote a, uh, a story that I just love. It's funny, I asked you for some clips and I read this one already. And it was uh, the road trip that changed Hillary Clinton's life. And um, you basically, you, you sat down with uh, Sarah Ehrman and um, you know, your lead was Hillary Clinton gazed out the window of a beat up 68 Buick rolling down Interstate 81 and saw spruce trees, the Blue Ridge Mountains and the life she'd left behind. Ms. Clinton, then a 26-year-old lawyer, had just finished working on the Watergate Committee and wanted to be with her boyfriend, Bill Clinton, who was teaching law in Arkansas. Her landlord, Sarah Ehrman, who worried her bright young tenant was throwing away her future, offered to drive her down from Washington and over the course of two days and 1,193 miles in August 74, Mrs. Ehrman tried to talk Ms. Rodman out of her plan. We drive along and I say, Hillary, for God's sakes, Ms. Ehrman, now 97, recalled, He'll just be a country lawyer down there. Hmm. Fucking great story. Thank you. Oh, so freaking good. No, it took me like a year to get Sarah to agree to tell me that story on the record. I had to like go visit her and bring her babka. And we got to know each other really well before she ever agreed to do it on the record. Wait, so why? Wait, so Hillary did not want her talking. No. I mean, they were so controlling. They were just like, if we're going to tell the story, we're going to do it in our way with our ad mate. We're not going to leave it to the New York Times to find some nefarious angle, you know. So they, like, didn't want her to do it. And they kept telling her. It's funny. They kept telling her not to meet with me. And then, like, we got to know each other. And I, she showed me this email that she sent to Hillary's press guys. And she was like, for God's sake, Amy's just a nice Jewish girl from Texas. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> She's feisty, so she like defied them and finally decided to just do it anyway. So, so what won her over, do you think? I mean, we got to know each other really well. Actually, Sarah, um, her political, she was a real pioneer. She worked for George McGovern's. She was the political director of George McGovern's campaign. You think about a woman having that yeah. kind of role. And her, she was assigned to South Texas, which was where Bill and Hillary also were working. And I'm from... I'm from South Texas, so we she, we had like we played like Jewish geography, and of course like some of the like donors down in Waco where my dad's from, or the or Laredo where my mom's side is from. Like we we just knew like same, the same people, um, and had just like really great conversations about that. So I don't know, we just became close. And she's a really she's been great. To, she was great to a lot of women. Um, it's. It was so sad when she passed, yeah. 
I just want to say the power of Jewish geography knows no bounds. It really does. It's one of the most, I actually am not kidding when I say this. I remember I was sent to New Orleans to do a story on Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning growing up. And I met with his second grade teacher. <laughs> and I knew right off the bat she was Jewish, even though she didn't have a Jewish last name. We knew someone in common within five minutes. It's the most insane thing of all time. <laughs> and I, like I know, it is crazy. Oh, yeah, because she, like, she was always complaining that D.C. had no, like, because she grew up in New York, and she was always complaining that D.C. didn't have any, like, Jewish culture. So I'd bring her, like, Bobka or black and white cookies or, like, something from the Lower East Side. Wait, so what are, um, what are some, tra- you know, I, I get a lot of sort of young up-and-coming journalists who listen to this. Um, when someone doesn't want to talk to you or is told mm-hmm. not to talk to you or is hesitant about talking to you, yeah. besides bringing Bobka, like, what are the tricks of the trade? Oh God! It depends on the person and their motivations, obviously. But I mean, for Sarah, I just wanted to like convince her that I'm like I have good intentions and I'm not a bad person and like that kind of thing. I mean, other people need different different motivations. For instance, if they're scared to talk, you know, you have to assure them that you can protect them or that kind of thing. But like, I also just think like persistence. Like I'm just thinking about a story I did recently and. Um, this person was very scared to talk. We had so many meals before this person even decided to talk. It was just like a, yeah, people just want to feel like you're not like calling them for a quote and then get to screw them over. I think, I, I think persistence really helps in just getting to know you as a human. I mean, like, it's funny. My editor here was like, when I was pregnant, she was like, tell them you're pregnant. Meet them and tell them you're pregnant. Like, they'll, they'll, they'll love you. I was like, what? And she's like, you seem like a human. She's like, I got my best reporting done when I was pregnant. I was like, oh, okay. But kind of worked. Seriously. People, people are like, oh, you're a human. We can talk about other things. And like, you're not a bad person. And yeah, so... You wrote a piece um, in January called, you know the Lorena Bobbitt story, but not all of it. Um, Lorena Bobbitt famously cut the penis of her husband off. And you have a line in this story that I freaking love. And you're not, you're going to be like, if I gave you a hundred guesses, you would, you probably wouldn't get this one. You wrote, it's been 26 years since Lorena Bobbitt. And then you said a 24 year old wounded bird of a woman. (laughs) That is the best freaking Oh, thanks. Wait, I'm being serious. I'm fast. <laughs> Where does that even come from? Like, what what makes you describe her as a wounded bird of a woman? Um, yeah, I mean, that's just how she struck me when I went back and watched the footage from '93. She's just like tiny. I mean, she's tiny and she's delicate and she's so pained. Her face is. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that story. I almost sent it because I did. I did love doing that story, but she just looked. I don't know. That was my first impression. Is was um, this because because part of the trial, um, John accuses her of abusing him. She weighed like ninety pounds, and she her face is just like you can just see the pain on her on this woman's face. So I don't know. That's just how she struck me. Right. So how did this? I know she had a Netflix series coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, did, how did you end up doing this story? Like, why did you end up hanging with Lorena Bobbitt? How did that transpire? It was sort of random. A source of mine was somewhat involved with the documentary and mentioned her, and I was like, "Oh, that's a name I haven't heard." No, it's funny because my friend, kept, my source, kept texting me and be like, "Do you want to do Lorraine? Do you want to destroy Lorraine or not?" And I was like, "Who is Lorena? What is she talking about?" And then she's like, "Lorena Bobbitt." I was like, "Hello, you should have said that from the beginning." But um, so yeah, that's sort of how that 
came about. Um, I loved that story just because I feel like I felt like it did her. She needed to be reassessed, like in our current era. And I was I was very proud to be able to interview her and have people sort of rethink this thing that we thought we knew, all knew. Wait, I just want to say I read a ton of your clips. Well, thanks. This is my favorite thing you wrote. I freaking love this story. This story is freaking. <laughs> wait, I just want to read the lead real quick. It's like okay. you're in Virginia. Lorena is very matter of fact about the whole thing. There, she said. As, there, she said as she drove us around in her Kia on a recent afternoon was a hospital where surgeons reattached John Wayne Bobbitt's penis after she cut it off with a kitchen knife as he slept on the night of June 23rd, 1993. 15 minutes away near Maplewood Drive was a gravel-strewn field where she disposed of the detached penis out of the driver's side window. So why did she throw it away, I asked? This is the best. I tried to drive the car, obviously, but I had this thing in my hand, so I couldn't drive it, so I got rid of it. And then you wrote, obviously, like... <laughs> It's so good. Well, I just I, it's so freaking good. I love like, I mean, I love everything about this, right? Um, I mean, sometimes stories kind of write themselves, and leads just kind of write themselves. Are you driving with her and just sort of, this is an obvious place to start because she's driving. You're driving. She's showing you where she threw a penis. No, but that was kind of great because I met her for lunch to do the interview, and then she was going to do a photo shoot on another side of town, and we were still sort of chatting. And I actually had a rental car, but I was like, oh, will you drive me to the photo shoot? I, I didn't anticipate that we were going to have this drive. Um, it wasn't even something I planned. And even when I was in the car, I didn't think she was actually going to like, but it's a small town, Manassas. So we start driving and then she started like pointing out all the places. And I was like, well, this is amazing. And, um, and the lead, I think I thought of it like after, like on my way, like usually when I finish an interview, I start just like, before I can even transcribe, just like jotting down the things that I thought were most important or useful. And, um, and I think the lead sort of came to me in that period. But the thing about this story and like you, we both laughed when we heard that lead is like, it's just like tragedy and farce, you know, like, like Lorena, was you know repeatedly raped and tried to call the police and was ignored and threatened you know she wasn't documented and she was threatened with deportation and all of these horrible things happened to her but like there is also humor in it and it's why we kind of can't look away from that story and like and that was something that was interesting in talking to her and writing about it and so her sort of evolution that like okay there's something kind of funny about it like and that's why people are now paying attention to me when she's she's a she's a domestic violence act activist now um but yeah so that's how that we came about but thank you i love that story why is the make of the car important like you said there she said as she drove us around in her kia like couldn't you have just said in her mm -hmm. car like does that matter yeah i could have i think specificity is extremely important and i actually get a lot of um, sometimes people that I'm writing about like don't get it. They're like, "Why are you? Why do you have to describe what kind of whatever I'm wearing? I'm wearing, especially women. People are like, like, why are you describing her clothes? Or why are you describing this or that?'" And it's like I just think painting a picture in your head. I mean, if she had been driving a BMW, it would be a very different picture. I think a Kia is like a specific mm -hmm. image that you have in your head yeah. um, versus a BMW or a Range Rover or whatever. Um, even like a beat up jalopy, whatever it is, I think it's, um, yeah, I think specificity is very, is very important. The story I wrote um, over the weekend, and I visited this artist's 
house and I said that the air smelled like a mix of patchouli and Clorox, which was true. But for some reason, I heard from so many people who were like, patchouli and Clorox, I totally get it. This is an Upper West Side hippie Jew. Like you just completely, you know, like this very specific description can really help someone. I actually, it's funny. I uh, I recently asked my daughter, who's 15, what what her room smells like. She said... (laughs) It smells like a combination, a merging of chlorine and roses. And oh, I thought, there you go. That's so good. Like those yeah. things. Yeah, I love that stuff. Um, I also love your, this is going to sound dumb, right? And you're going to be like, this guy needs a life. You have her quote. I tried to drive the car, obviously, but I had this thing in my hand, so I couldn't drive, so I got rid of it, period, end quote. And then you just write, obviously. And <laughs> because I'm always teaching my, I teach at a, a Chapman University out here, just adjunct. And I'm always telling students, like, you learn all the rules coming up. And then you break all the rules as soon as you enter the business. So your mm-hmm. English teacher in 10th grade is going to see you use, obviously, as a one-word <laughs> sentence. So you can't do that. You can't do that. Right, right. I, in fact, when I was coming up, you couldn't use penis. At the Nashville, Tennessee in the 1990s, penis was not a word that could appear in print. Oh, but that was funny. Looking through all these old clips of the Lorena Bobbitt trial in the Times and the Washington Post, and they would say organ or they would say <laughs> member. I mean, it was like all the, like, finagling around penis was amazing so funny and there's no um, good reason because it's a medical term like even back then it made a medical no sense term. i mean exactly there's the other that. thing that my editor on that piece let me do <laughs> there's a part where john wayne bobbitt invites me to his hotel to like keep talking yeah and i could see an editor say like well why why do people need to know that like to me that was evocative of someone who doesn't understand boundaries and important to include actually that's a really fascinating paragraph you wrote it's all made up and i'm tired of it john said I was with a lot of women, a lot of women, and none of them ever complained except Lorena. Then you have, he paused, period. And Joanna, after we discussed the allegations, he proposed we keep talking over dinner at the Empire Hotel where he was staying, period. I declined. Now, when he was like, we should talk over dinner at the hotel, did you find it a creepy thing for him to say? I mean... Let's see. I knew his history. If you know his history since the assault, he has been uh, in prison several times for assaulting women. There is a particularly harrowing um, encounter when he tied up a girlfriend for several days and and raped her repeatedly. And then she had to pretend to be dead and he tried to dispose of her body. And that's the only way that she escaped. So, like, I knew about these harrowing, very harrowing history of assault. So, um, so partly... Um, I mean, a couple things in that in that sense. You want to give somebody, a, even if somebody has been accused and, and indicted on assault, you want to give them a chance to defend themselves. Like, that's what we have ethically have to do. So, like, obviously I wanted him to be able to respond to the allegations. And so I had to make it clear in that story, that in that piece, that, like, he did get a chance to to respond. But, like, this is Lorena's story. She never got to tell her. She really never got to tell her story. And so it was, like... I mean, the way my editor saw it is like, it's very poignant in that, like, you're not telling the story this time, you know, like, we're going to listen to this woman who we never listened to before, who we just portrayed as a crazy bitch who cut off her husband's penis. We're going to actually listen to her side and you're going to have your chance to respond. But like, that's it. You're done. You didn't, you know, so it was sort of like, it was sort of meant to signal, um, this is not this time. It's not his story. What, like I had a couple of friends who were like, I would have totally gone to dinner with you if we had with Don Wayne Bob, and I can't believe you said no. <laughs> Ew, no thank you. I don't think I, I would have gone to dinner with her. I'd be like, nah, it's okay, really. No thanks. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, OJ. I could do without it. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, quick word from our sponsor. 
Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with Catherine, my wife. And uh, a few weeks ago, you donated a kidney, and I have a theory. What's up? Okay, so I admit you're a nice person, and donating a kidney is definitely a big deal. Thank you. But I honestly think you did it to get jerseys and t-shirts from 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. I'm not following. Come on. You know 503 Sports sponsors this podcast. You know their people listen. So you figure, give a kidney, lose some blood, blah, 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 blah. And the 503 folks feel bad for you and they start shipping you all this awesome stuff your way. I've never been more insulted. Really? Yeah, because they haven't sent me a thing. Let me ask you the last thing here. You, um, I mean, when you're a sports writer, you take a lot of crap on social media, but it's yeah. not even in the same, not even in the same stratosphere as being a political writer. Yeah. Um, you know, I follow you on Twitter or whatever. I, I, you write about, you wrote a lot about Hillary about the election. Yeah. Um, you take a lot of shit. You have taken a lot of shit over the years. How do you survive social media in 2019 as a journalist? I mean, for one, it's like kind of, and I and I don't mean to dismiss your question because it's a good question, but like I do think there is a lot of complaining about how hard journalists have it on social media. And I'm like, we're not the Rohingya, you know? It's like, it's like it's fine. Like someone's mean, like people are mean to you on social media. You're like, and, and so um, it, it sucks. Like it feels like shit. And also like so much of it is so dumb. Like what, what kills me is like, so much of it is just so dumb and empty. It's like, it's not the forum to have legitimate debate or legitimate um, criticism. Um, so that is frustrating. And I also, I've sort of pulled back. I'm not really that much on Twitter. Like I've sort of pulled back because it's just distracting to me, especially when I'm working on a story, like the one that ran over the weekend about this artist, it like had nothing to do with Mueller or Trump or the 2020. It was just getting my head out. It sort of got my head out of what I was working on and distracted on like these fights over who knows what. Um, so yeah, it's not pleasant, but I think you have to like step back and say like, oh, the storm will move on to the next person pretty soon. And like, actually, as far as journalists go, like journalists are arrested in the Philippines, are arrested in all all, all Venezuela, been killed and, and cracked down on, and it's like we're pretty coddled, like right, you know, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, like, ask me that in the midst of a Twitter shit storm, and I might say it differently. But yeah, I do feel like it's just comes with the territory and blows over. Do you have the self-control to be working on a story and not go on social media for three days? So the book really trained me in this way. Like I actually put a, like one of those like parental blockers on wow. Twitter on my on my computer when I was writing the book and then like after at the end of the day I allow myself to like look on my phone for like a little while um, and that sort of like trained me. It also like made me realize that like it doesn't mean you're not you know I, I can actually be more productive if I'm not on Twitter all day yeah so I mean there's a kind of a sense of like I disappeared if I'm not tweeting all the time but like actually this is like a little a very small echo chamber and you can contribute something like bigger to the world if you like turn it off for a little while and focus on that bigger thing um, it's so funny I'm on a book deadline right now and parental blocker man. oh I'm using uh, there's something called say <laughs> of freedom which uh, you can set sessions that block for like an hour, two hours, as many hours as you set, and you cannot get back on. And that it's is been, smart. It's been a life changer for me. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I know I tell people to do that. I don't understand writers. I mean, there are very prolific writers like Stephen King, for instance, who are on Twitter all day, and I've been wanting to ask them how they do that. 
Yeah. I call it the uh, the Emmanuel Lewis syndrome, which is I end up I'll think of like the TV show Webster from when I was a kid starring oh, Emmanuel yeah. Lewis. And then you Google Emmanuel Lewis just real quick because it's going to be real quick. And then five hours later, you're reading about his dog. And you're like, how did I get here? How did this like, happen? What? I don't understand how I fall into this rabbit hole. <laughs> I know the other thing I've realized is that like actually being on Twitter leaves you like I used to think it was something to like stay informed, but you're actually like less informed. Like, yeah. um, you know, you see the whether it's the video of the Covington Catholic kids or the I mean, you could name like 15 different scandals by the time you look at Twitter like two hours later the picture has like very much changed Yeah. so it's almost like to me better to wait and like look at it later I don't know actually that's a great the Covington Catholic kid is the perfect example where I saw it and I tweeted out five minutes later oh my god this is terrible these kids blah 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 and you're like oh wait I, I probably need to delete that Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows? I mean, it's more nuanced. I'm not saying it's one way or the other. I just think like there's have been so many cases where like the initial reflex is like, oh my god, and then it looks more complicated once you once you dig in a little. There were some other things. God, I kept there was like a whole list of things. And I thought I need to write a story about this. There's like five or six things that I'm less informed by by yeah. looking at Twitter. <laughs> yeah. No. That's good. Well, Amy, from uh, from one mediocre college attendee to another. I would like to I would like to thank you for uh, our colleges were not mediocre. <laughs> I will tell you this, I would not get into Delaware now, two thousand nineteen. Yeah, I don't know if I'd get into UT. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there you go. Well, Amy, seriously, but, thank you so much for doing this. I really So I mean, good to talk to you. Yeah, I'm a huge admirer of your work, so I uh, I greatly appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Amy Chozik, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Amy on Twitter at Amy Chozik and visit her website at amychozik.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the Dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.